I'm Charles Davidson, the executive director of the Kleptocracy Initiative here at Hudson Institute. And uh, welcome, everyone. And welcome to our uh, live audience, online audience. Um, and uh, I, I like to say this is we're sort of revving things up after the summer again. There's been a lot of interest in um, our subject lately. And uh, that's been, been kind of nice. Um, so uh, today, we're going to present a new report uh, addressing the whole issue of Western enablement of kleptocracy and corruption, which is a long-standing theme of ours. And I thought we should really uh, produce something that very specifically focuses just on this issue, because it's a challenge, really, that uh, liberal democracies face as a whole, and something that we absolutely must confront, in our view. Now, uh, this issue one finds in uh, all of our publications, really, up till now. And since we, I think everyone uh, just about has the report in front of them, on page 24, there is a list of all of our previous publications. And um, uh, rather than summarizing them all as I did once, uh, Nate and uh, Ben have decided to list them here so that I don't do that. Uh, so I'll just touch on, uh, on one thing in one of these reports, and then Ben will summarize the, port, uh, the report, and we'll hear from Elise and uh, Mark and Nate, whom I will all introduce in just a moment. So the second report we published by the remarkable British journalist Oliver Bullough, I apologize for all the Brits. Oliver's a Brit, Ben's a Brit, Nate's a Brit. I, just, I mean, this is it's not doesn't reflect any particular bias. That's just the way it's happened. Uh, but in uh, this relatively short report of Oliver Bullough's, which I strongly recommend, the title is uh, Stagehands, How Western Enablers Facilitate Kleptocracy. And in this report that Ben and uh, Native just penned, we don't reference that or the little uh, the paradigm that he sets up. So. Uh, it's very simple, and he, he sees three stages to this facilitation of kleptocracy, uh, and at every stage, there are enablers in the liberal democracies who facilitate each of these stages. And the first stage is you have to be able to steal the money. The second stage is you have to be able to stash it somewhere in a safe Western rule of law country. And then the third stage is you have to uh, habilitate I don't know if that's a word, but rehabilitate would not be the right word, your reputation and become a full-fledged, respectable member of, uh, of uh, society and whatever uh, crimes, what we would consider to be crimes, which may include murder and Lord knows what not, uh, need to be uh, uh, erased from the record. And of course, that's an expensive proposition. And there's a whole industry that in the West caters to doing just this. So, uh, Ben, uh, oh, before we, we turn to Ben, let me just uh, introduce our, our other very distinguished panelists. Elise Bean, I've known for years and years, and um, she was um, Carl Levin's, Senator Carl Levin's right hand for 
years and years, I think really most, most of her career, and she has just published a book called Financial Exposure, Carl Levin Senate Investigations into Finance and Tax Abuse. And Elise is one of the leading experts on precisely those subjects and has worked on that for years and years in the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations of the Senate uh, and is very well known in this whole community of um, people on the Hill and in Washington trying to address these issues. Um, Mark Hayes is with uh, Global Witness and uh, focuses on the uh, corruption portfolio, as I understand it. And we have um, interfaced a great deal with Mark over the last few years, really since the founding of the Kleptocracy Initiative, which was now, gosh, over four years ago. Um, uh, now, Ben, do I need to introduce you, Ben? I suppose I need to introduce Ben, although to this crowd, hardly. Uh, so Ben uh, uh, had done, been working with us since the start of the Kleptocracy Initiative, and then uh, joined us on a more permanent basis, not full-time, uh, but he, he joined us uh, more permanently about two years ago. And so if you look at our reports, you see a lot of them are authored or co-authored by Ben Judah. Ben published a book about Russia at age 23 called Fragile Empire that all Russia experts seem to think was pretty darn good. And Ben actually went there and traveled all over the place and talked to people. He didn't just toy around with things that had already been published in the newspapers um, or that were well known. So that's an important book. And then he's, he's published more recently a book called This is London, which one finds in the kiosks and museum shops of uh, London and all of that. Um, and uh, oh, I could say more, but I won't. And then Nate Sibley is the program manager of the Kleptocracy Initiative and enables me to be in semi-retirement. Uh, on this, which is uh, marvelous. And, um, and uh, so Nate puts out, among other things, a daily brief, which we call something else now. I think it's called Kleptocracy Watch. Kleptocracy Watch. Yep, Kleptocracy Watch. And it has a huge following. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, a lot of people in our government read this, etc. So we are con condemned to continue to do it. But if you want to basically see everything in the press and the media on the subject of kleptocracy, we try to pick up all of it. And um, of course, we're at 99% or higher, no doubt, something like that. Uh, no, not, not that high, but we really get most of it. Uh, and a lot of people seem to find that a useful resource. So, um, we left anything out, Nate? Okay. So let's roll, Ben. Um, and uh, oh, and I should say that the Ben's going to present the report, but then Elise and Mark are going to also uh, enrich on this. We're not just going to uh, be entirely focused on the report, but we're going to go, they'll bring in their expertise on the subject and take us beyond just what's in these pages. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'd like to first thank uh, Charles for his sort of support and leadership on this uh, this project from the, the beginning and thank uh, Nate Sibley for sort of being the, the driver on this report in particular. And um, I hope today we could have a more sort of uh, intellectual discussion and less of a presentation about the the themes of this report. And I thought I'd begin with this 
points which we've been trying to do here since the beginning, which is trying to reconceptualize how we think about power and national security for a financialized world. Uh, over the last sort of 10 years, there's been a revolution in how we conceptualize tax and uh, issues such as tax and financial flows and what that means for national stability, what that means for bank balances, looking at the flows between countries, thinking in terms more of macro finance and less in terms of isolated national islands whose financial systems trade between each other. And what we've been doing is trying to make sure that the national security conversation catches up with that revolution in how we look at finance, which has taken place in the leading financial institutions and in the leading institutions in Washington, DC, which are sort of sitting uh, right here with us to take us much further into that uh, debate. When we're thinking about uh, the, when we're thinking about power, I think it's always very important to not think of institutions as, uh, uh, not thinking of political institutions as sort of buildings and bodies that sit there on their own. It's important to think who staffs them, who goes into them, and what they're embedded in. And the key institutions of Western democracy are deeply embedded and I think profoundly shaped by the professional classes that make up um, that make up the people within them. And one thing that has been the case almost since the beginning and has returned to be the case in the sort of Western world over the last 30 years is that a specific small group of professions dominate the outlook and the staffing of the institutions of liberal democracy. And th those are well known, those are the uh, class of lawyers, uh, bankers, uh, accountants, and people involved in the manufacture of image from the sort of, uh, from PR right to its more um, political sort of weaponization. And if we're going to think about the attitudes prevalent in those institutions, we need to think, what are the norms? What are the regulations affecting? How do these, how do these professional classes uh, see the world. Now, the, as, you, as we have moved to a uh, situation where you have giant financial flows cycling between, not simply within a transatlantic financial system, but into a sort of uh, global financial system where the financial flows are almost as important between London and uh, New York and uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai, and with a significant flow between sort of Eurasia and um, the sort of central uh, hub, these professions have become increasingly interwoven and embedded in servicing that financial flow. But even though it is often very pleasing to think so when you're sitting in a uh, a boardroom or in a sort of uh, in a lawyer's office to view these financial flows as anonymous, uh, empty cash with no identities apart from the, the digits. These financial flows are coming from, uh, to a large extent, from authoritarian states and are coming from states which are deeply corrupt and predatory, not only on their own peoples, but also with an agenda to strengthen their authoritarian uh, base at home by aggression uh, abroad and by subterfuge uh, abroad. Now, what we're arguing in this report is that even though we're sitting in a city where you have enormous teams 
problems that are thinking about space security, that are thinking about border security, that are thinking about airport security. There hasn't been uh, a, ser a serious enough conversation in the national security community about how one should defend oneself, police, investigate, or simply be aware of the geopolitical consequences of these huge financial flows. And what we are arguing in this report is that a lack of legislation placed on these professional communities has turned them into the enablers of, of the strengthening of authoritarian kleptocracy within the West. So let's, if we, would, if we were going to take the most important uh, of these professions, if we're going to look at the legal, um, if we're going to look at the legal profession, if we're going to, if we will see that the American legal community has played a key enabling uh, role in servicing individuals such as the such as Pavlo Lazarenko, the former Ukrainian Prime Minister, Chen Shubian, the former President of Taiwan, Teradora Nuguma Obiang Mangwe, the current Vice President of Equatorial Guinea, and many others. And that these services they were offering, and they, these services they were offering them, it was not simply a matter of balance sheets. It was also a pr process that saw them strengthen their political hold over those countries and establish a stronger footing as political actors uh, within the West. When we started this uh, project, this sort of concept was sort of a bit remote. It was a sort of thing that sort of think tankers and sort of woolly professors might be sort of fretting about. But now we see it really dominating the news uh, agenda, where one sees these cases of American professionals having worked uh, for um, authoritarian uh, kleptocrats and having believed to be engaged in authoritarian influence campaigns daily dominating the news headlines. And what we hope to offer with this report is a grounding that shows that this isn't simply a case of one campaign. It's not simply the case of a few bad apples. What this is re revelatory of is actually a system. It's a, sy it's a systemic uh, it's a systemic problem that will keep occurring as long as these professional communities have it in their uh, business interests or simply not prevented from doing uh, effectively engaging in a money laundering nexus with authoritarian kleptocrats. So what's the key element? And I'm just going to sort of briefly outline this before I pass on to my esteemed uh, colleagues. Um, the key element uh, here the key element here permitting this is that the way that the uh, financial and legal system is currently constituted permits authoritarian kleptocrats the possibility of anonymity within the Western financial system, and in particular, the United States. And this is done through not only the sort of infamous uh, um, sort of anonymous shell companies, which my colleague has described as the getaway cars for authoritarian kleptocrats, but also through trusts and uh, also through trusts, uh, call options, and certain forms of derivatives. And that once you permit this possibility to be anonymous within the West, within the, the uh, 
within a financial space under the sovereignty of Western democracy. It allows individuals who are plundering their treasuries uh, abroad, who are engaged in corruption, who are engaged in human rights violations in authoritarian states to act in a predatory manner and then secure their assets in the West, which creates a sort of a loop which strengthens them uh, in both uh, situations. Um, in terms, just, just before I sort of hand over, in terms of how we should be uh, thinking, uh, in terms of how we should be thinking about this, I think that it's, there's a certain, there's a sort of joke in Washington, D.C. that what we're living through is the series, that the series editors have put in a funny joke, uh, sort of a new character, or the characters in this aspect or that aspect of the Trump series is, uh, is more boring or more, more amusing than last time. And I think that focusing on what's happening right now in this very, very personalized TV uh, sort of experiencing is missing the wider point, which is, is that there are, which is that sociologically power is embedded in these professional communities and that the financial flows between these professional communities and authoritarian states are significant and strong and that without effective uh, reform, there is a feedback loop based on a money laundering nexus, which is turning American sort of lawyers, uh, lobbyists, and bankers into the enablers of authoritarian influence. Thank you. Right. Thank, you. So, thank you very much. Now for the real experts. <laughs> First of all, I'd like to thank the Kleptocracy Initiative um, for all of the terrific work that you do. This is important work. It has national security implications. And it is terrific, the kind of output that you're generating and the thought that you're provoking. And Charles, I would like to also thank you for your leadership in this space. What I like about this latest report is the breadth of the professional classes that are looked at. We have not only lawyers, we have incorporation agents, uh, financial services, which includes investment advisors, real estate agents, lobbyists and PR professionals, uh, and professionals in the areas of fintech and cryptocurrency. So that's a very broad uh, swath that this report takes a look at. It also provides us with a story that's an old story. It's an often told story, and yet it's more urgent than ever. It comes down to really two things uh, for helping corrupt and authoritarian leaders. Uh, it's the money. It's always the money, which enables them to act. And second of all, it's anonymity the hidden owners behind shell companies, trusts, foundations, other legal entities that allows these people to move their cash uh, in the West uh, with impunity. What I'd like to do is add a little bit more color in some of these uh, professions to just give you a little bit more idea about what we're talking about. So I'm a lawyer, all right, but I'm, I'm going to talk about the lawyers anyway. They have been enabling corruption and money laundering for a long time. Uh, just to talk about some of the cases, uh, one of the ones mentioned in the report has to do with the Malaysian scandal, where uh, billion, actually hundreds of millions of dollars were run through U.S. law firms. Shearson and Sterling, $368 million were provided to their law firm account or their law firm client accounts from uh, Mr. Lowe, who's involved in this scandal, and then it was from there invested in real estate and other types of assets. Um, they actually used IOLTA accounts. Those are interest on law accounts, uh, trust accounts, that um, required by law when you put your uh, 
client money into an account. The interest is then used for pro bono uh, beneficial legal uh, activities. So they're using their IOLTA account, putting $368 million of suspect money into it. Um, we have another law firm, DLA Piper, $218 million from the same individuals. And there were other law firms involved as well, Sullivan and Cromwell, Aiken Gump, and others. Uh, that's the kind of thing that our law firms are doing, enabling these very large sums of money to pass through into the financial system. Another example, much, on a much smaller scale, in uh, 2016, a California lawyer named Richard Medina was sentenced to five years in prison for running an unlicensed money transmitting system. And what he was doing is he was allowing people from all over the world, he didn't know who they were, he claims, to submit money to his uh, client accounts at his law firm. He would take a fee for it, and then he would move that money on. So he was helping to actually launder funds. Third example, in 2015, a Connecticut lawyer, uh, Ralph Crozier, was sentenced to prison for laundering a client's drug proceeds. He knew they were drug proceeds, and he offered to invest them in his law partner's solar energy business. So that's what he was doing with the drug money. These are lawyers who are assisting corrupt uh, and authoritarian regimes to move their cash, to hide that cash, and to take advantage of it. Um, and lobbyist space. So we don't often talk about lobbyists, but it's getting more attention. But back in 2010, Senator Levin had an investigation where he looked at a lobbyist, uh, a small-time lobbyist. His name was Jeffrey Burrell. He was self-employed. He worked for the president of Gabon, Omar Bongo. And he worked on two different issues. One was getting armored cars uh, manufactured for them in the United States and shipped to Gabon. And he also was trying to arrange a sale from Saudi Arabia to Gabon of some C-130 military cargo planes. You are not allowed to make that type of sale without US permission. While he's working on these two projects, he accepts $18 million from Gabon. This is money that was transferred from uh, Mr. Bongo's personal account and also from an account opened by an entity called Ayira, which we were never able to find out what that was. Was it a corporation, a trust, foundation? or simply a name, we never knew. But he took $18 million from Equatorial Guinea into his law firm account, and then forwarded the money as his clients directed, as Mr. Bongo directed. So he sent a million dollars to various consultants. We wonder what that's about. He sent $4.2 million to accounts associated with a Bongo senior official. And when it was all over, he had $9.2 million left over, and he sent that to a Bongo account, not in, Equator not in Gabon, but in Malta. What do you think was going on there? I think that they were misusing that lobbyist to launder their funds and direct it in ways that would help them carry out uh, the activities that they wanted to. Uh, more recently, we heard about Mr. Sam Patton, who has admitted taking $50,000 from a foreign citizen, directing it to an inaugural committee, besmirching not only that committee, but also the candidate and our country. That's the kind of things that lobbyists are doing. We need to have better uh, insight into what they're doing. Finally, I'm going to talk about the real estate space. Um, back in 2010, we talked about uh, real estate agents who were helping um, uh, Teodoro Obiang from Equatorial Guinea to buy and sell homes in California, including a, a, a massive mansion in Malibu. Um, but there were also, we also looked at a case where Mr. Obiang was buying a $38 million Gulfstream personal jet. Uh, the story there that was so interesting is that he was using an entity called 
Ebony Shine International, shell company, nobody knew who was behind it. That was the entity that actually wanted to buy the plane. Um, the escrow agent who was handling the sale, um, McAfee and Taft, said, well, we need to know who's behind Ebony Shine. He had a voluntary anti-money laundering program. Uh, Ebony Shine refused to disclose its ownership, and uh, McAfee and Taft said, well, then we're not doing the deal and return the money. Did that cause a problem? Not really. They turned to another entity called um, IATS, uh, which was also an escrow agent providing escrow services, but they had no voluntary anti-money laundering program. They said, sure, we'll take the money. We don't care who you are. And they did the sale, uh, and it went forward. And therefore, the business that had the anti-money laundering program that was trying to be careful about what money was handling had a business disadvantage. That isn't right. Um, today, many high-end properties, real estate, is, are, are, those properties are owned by shell companies and shell legal entities. We don't know who's behind them. Their owners are hidden. And it's not just residential property, it's also commercial. <clears throat> One example is um, an office holder from Mexico, a state in Mexico, uh, was convicted in 2016 of using suspect funds to buy over a dozen properties, commercial and residential, in southern Texas, including a CVS pharmacy. I mean, that's the kind of thing where this money is going. It's, it's starting to permeate the United States, and we're not doing enough to stop it. Final example, in a 2017 GAO report, they looked at um, uh, office space being leased by federal agencies and these are law enforcement agencies like DEA and others, and they found out that they were leasing the office space from properties owned by shell companies for whom the owners were hidden. So what's happening with the office space? How do we know it's secure? How do we know what's going on in terms of those offices? <laughs> so we have three different areas, uh, and there are others covered by this report, where we have problems going on. The report has some recommendations about what to do about this, essentially saying, all of these uh, actors are not covered by anti-money laundering laws now. They have no legal obligation to do due diligence and know who their client is and to be careful not about the money that they're accepting and moving. Um, I think the, what we should do is even a little bit stronger than what the report recommends, but I'll, I'll save that because I know Mark wants to comment as well. But you'll tell us later if Mark doesn't mention it. I sure will. <laughs> she definitely will. Um, well, thank you, Elise. Uh, it's good to join you on the stage. And I want to extend my thanks to Charles and Nate for having us here today. And um, congrats to Ben for a really great report that I think very, in a very detailed but concise fashion covers uh, a broad swath of activity in different sectors um, in a way that really paints a, a cross-sectional -sec picture of the problem we're dealing with. Um, and Elise has already eloquently described both the history and the color and the, and the impacts and the implications of this. Um, for me, three things stood out that I just want to speak to, um, three points really that were either made or alluded to in the report that I want to expand on. Um, and I'll say them and then kind of elaborate. So the first is I think it's becoming increasingly clear and harder to ignore that the role that these professionals play in facilitating the movement of illicit funds is not a case of isolated incidences, but uh, a systemic problem. Um, and I'll say why that's an important point. It seems obvious, but it's worth sharing. I think the second point to say um, is that um, we are also seeing promising data or promising responses to transparency measures. They're still new, and we still have more to figure out about them. Measures outlined in this report 
um, that we believe could be some solutions to the problems here, um, which is to say that sunlight really can help. It's not a panacea, but it can help, and I think that's important because um, oftentimes the pushback is what, what will transparency really do to solve some of these problems? And I think the third point I want to elaborate on is, is in addition to the need for policy change and accountability, there's an element of culture change that is happened, should happen, and can happen that will go hand in hand with a shift in how uh, financial professionals are or are not enabling some of these activities. So on the isolated uh, versus systemic piece, um, the report uh, kindly makes reference to an investigation we did several years back um, into the role that, that lawyers play in facilitating uh, money laundering and financial secrecy. Um, uh, we had known for a while through our investigative work looking into corruption in the natural resources sector that um, lawyers and other financial professionals were often intermediaries that not only um, played a, a sort of conduit role for this kind of act, this kind of these kinds of funds, but were active, actively orchestrating the schemes um, to develop the complex schemes you need to do this. Um, you know, your average uh, criminal actor or um, corrupt official may be quite uh, astute or intelligent, but they're not a financial professional. They need help. Um, but we didn't know quite how to document it. Um, data is hard to come by, and if you approach someone um, on the street as a lawyer and said, well, <laughs> how often do you launder money for your clients? I don't think you get a, a straight answer. Um, so we set up a scenario, a sting essentially, where we went undercover posing as the representative of a fictitious West African minister of mines, a profile based uh, roughly on the Obiang scenario, and one designed to raise clear red flags or warning signs for a series of clear money laundering 101 risks, um, geographic risks, risks um, trans transactional risks, and sort of um, persona risks. Um, and what we found after meeting with about uh, 16 different law firms, uh, speaking specifically with 13 different individuals, is that of the 13 we met with, all but 12 were quite willing to walk us through the paces <laughs> of what it actually took to um, skirt and, and a money laundering laws one. of the US, what's that? All but one. Oh, excuse me, yeah. All but one, and we're willing to um, happily walk us through that. Um, what it took to set up shell companies in Luxembourg, um, buy property in New York without alerting um, <coughs> detection. Um, and this really painted a clear picture uh, of how systemic the problem is at an anecdotal level. One of the people we profiled was actually um, James Silkenat, who was then um, president of the American Bar Association. But what I think it's really compelling about this report and something that, that Ben pulled out here is that uh, since that report has happened, we've seen a little advertised but really compelling report by FATF that evaluated um, not only um, uh, the importance of beneficial ownership transparency into combating money laundering, um, but the different ways in which financial professionals were, were either using that as a tool to uh, abide by their anti-money laundering obligations or skirting it. And there's a really important stat in there that I want to pull out that in the 100 cases that FATF looked at, um, looking at uh, uh, money laundering associated with beneficial ownership transparency or lack thereof, they found that the financial professionals involved in those cases, at least by their read, were complicit in that process. So 50% in 100 cases. Um, and I think what that points to it really reinforces the point. Um, you take anecdotes like the, the investigations we've done, you take the research that Ben and Nate have done, you take the research like FATF, and it starts to paint a picture that's increasingly hard to ignore, which is that this is not a case of a few bad apples, that across the board, these professionals are wittingly and uh, unwittingly and often sometimes wittingly part of the problem. Um, Mark, yeah. 
I don't know if you want to just, oh, excuse me, Financial Action Task Force, um, the sort of uh, intergovernmental body that about 30-odd countries um, who are part of the global financial infrastructure are involved in, as well as many other affiliate countries trying to um, shore up their anti-money laundering laws across jurisdictions. Headquartered in Paris in a very nice location right next to the Bois de Boulogne near the OECD. Yes. And there's a certain amount of interaction between them and the OECD. Exactly. And it should be said that, you know, FATF has pointed out some of the problems posed by financial intermediaries for some time, um, depending on how you look at it, a decade or more. Um, so as Lisa, the story's not a new one, just an urgent one. Um, on the Sunlight Helps piece, um, Ben's report points out some great data coming from the U.S. Treasury's general targeting orders looking at um, uh, LLCs being used to purchase luxury real estate. Um, those orders were meant to shine a light on who are the beneficial owners of those companies purchasing that real estate. They're temporary, they're just meant to gather data, but even in those um, brief uh, moments of uh, sunlight, we found that you know, 30% of the beneficial owners named in those transactions have showed up on suspicious activity reports filed by banks with Treasury. Um, and we now know from some studies building on that data that um, when these requirements went into place, we saw dramatic drops um, in the uh, cash purchases of properties by LLCs during that time period. Um, but another piece of sunlight that's, that's welcome news is um, Global Witness did an analysis of the first beneficial ownership registry online in the UK that's public and um, found that uh, once the registry came online and entities were required to disclose their owners, one particularly pernicious type of entity, the Scottish Limited Partnership, associated with some of the m m largest money laundering cases we've seen come to light, the Azerbaijani laundromat, the Russian laundromat profiled by The Guardian um, and uh, OCCRP. Um, those ve vehicles featured heavily in the money laundering schemes profiled by those investigations. We've seen a 70% drop in the number of SLPs um, that are active in the registry since and the registry came online a result of the beneficial ownership requirements, we believe. So does it solve all the problems? No, but it suggests that when we actually make it harder for people to fly under the radar screen, um, uh, that has an impact. The last thing I'll say, and I'll turn it over to folks because I sense that we want to have a more interactive discussion here is culture change. Um, as an advocate, far be it for me to suggest that we merely need to talk to professionals and have a dialogue um, and hopefully everyone will figure it out for themselves. Um, you know, we believe strongly that there needs to be policy change, there needs to be accountability. But I think it's interesting as we've started to have these conversations in advocacy community with the legal profession when it comes to beneficial ownership or the banks when it comes to the importance of um, their money laundering uh, due diligence obligations. Um, all those entities and professionals have a long way to go. Uh, but you're starting to see some cracks in the facade. So for example, um, the legal profession's representation, the American Bar Association is staunchly opposed to beneficial ownership transparency in the US. Um, but there's increasing dissent from members of the bar who work in the human rights space, who work in the anti-corruption space, who are suggesting that it's not enough simply to claim that attorney-client privilege and confidentiality um, should negate uh, the legal profession's role in this. Um, not only because of the systemic problems we identify, but simply because that, that's not the only interpretation of the, the, a lawyer's obligation to the law. Yes, they have like obligations to their clients, an obligation to provide fair representation, but they also have an obligation 
to, to be fair arbiters and interpreters of that law. And the suggestion is that the status quo right now is not reflecting that. Similarly, I think while the banks have a long way to go, you're seeing a sea change in how the banks see um, beneficial ownership transparency in the US context. They see it now as less of a burden and more as an opportunity to reduce their, their compliance cost. Is that self-serving? Perhaps. Um, but as you start to poke away at these cultural assumptions in these professions and force them to reckon with these contradictions, I think you're going to see changes. And that's part of our job, even as we push for greater accountability. So I think um, by having this conversation about the, the systemic problem that enablers play in this problem and really forcing us all to reckon with that, um, I believe we're going to make progress um, slowly but surely. Thank you. Yeah, um, no, thanks for your, thanks for coming firstly. Thank you all for coming. Very little uh, to add to that um, pretty comprehensive tour around the world of enablement. And then it can be quite, still be quite difficult to understand the sort of pivotal role that enablers play in, in, in the phenomenon of transnational kleptocracy, which itself is very complicated, sophisticated, multi-jurisdictional uh, industry. It's every year a trillion dollars is stolen from developing countries I think the last time I saw it was about $12 trillion had been stolen since the 1970s and was just being parked offshore somewhere uh, in an, an account that's completely invisible to law enforcement. Um, so it can be very difficult to understand what role, you know, the people, you know, some of them might be in this room, but the people you, we work with here in DC, some of them play in this. Um, and as Ben's, Ben said that I said, I like to compare um, kleptocracy to sort of a, a bank robbery in which the, the, the robber is obviously the kleptocrat. Uh, the getaway vehicle is the anonymous shell company, which is why that's always our first and overwhelming policy recommendation. You take that away, and that money's not going anywhere apart from its home country, right? Uh, but then there's another uh, player involved in, in this analogy, which is uh, the getaway driver. Uh, and that is, unfortunately, all too often a Western lawyer um, or a crooked lobbyist or uh, an accountant who's not playing, who's bending the rules, something like that. Um, and with that in mind, uh, with this report, we had sort of two, um, to my mind, this serves two functions. First and most obviously, uh, we want to get the policies implemented uh, that shut down the, the bad eggs, right? Like, they just outlaw all the, all the sort of um, conduct that's going on at the moment that may be uh, unethical, um, it may be like wrong, borderline criminal, but it's just too hard for law enforcement to put that case together and, and get those people in the dock. Uh, the second point, though, and the one I think is more important, actually, is that um, it's also about insulating and safeguarding um, the vast majority of people working in these professions uh, who are completely honest, uh, just want to get on with their jobs. And are often, when they're called to deal with foreign kleptocrats or corrupt foreign officials, whatever you want to call them, uh, firstly, they, they have absolutely no idea what they're dealing with. Uh, you know, if you're an entry-level lawyer or PR executive, uh, you're not, you know, you don't have a sort of master's degree in international relations with a specialism in uh, financial crime or something, you're not, the alarm bells just won't go off. And in any case, you're busy, you've got your boss telling you what to do. Um, these are the people who aren't actually, they're not doing wrong, but they're, what, what they're doing is wrong. Uh, and so they're not in really in a position to push back and stand up often and say, you know, I'm not, you know, they won't know for a start, but they're not in position often financially themselves or whatever to stand up and walk out and say, I'm not doing this and I'm going to sh shop you to the police for asking you to do this. Uh, so, but the, the managers, their senior managers, uh, the people running their, their companies, they are and they should know better. Um, and so by holding them to account, we actually make um, life easier for everyone on the lower level. 
and we stop this sort of corrosive effect whereby people become bound into working with, these, with kleptocracy. Um, so I think it's as much about um, sort of pushing out, the, pushing out the rot, but also protecting the next generation of, of Western professionals uh, who want to do the right thing. Um, is there anything else? Uh, probably all from me for now. <laughs> Thank you. So on Charles's uh, suggestion, I thought we could sort of uh, now go and have a look at the actual policies that we've uh, developed to, to tackle this. So if you'd care to take this in a more seminar direction, you can open page 22 of the report, and, uh, and we can slowly sort of go through them uh, together. So, um, these are the, so just to sort of say, these are the policies that Nate and I both, uh, both develop, but drawing upon like, the campaigning that's been going on for years from our, our colleagues here. So the first question is legal services. And it's important to start with legal services because they are the entry point and the node for so many of these other professional services. And our first policy recommendation is that Congress should pass legislation requiring legal service providers to perform reasonable due diligence on, for, uh, on foreign prospective clients. Our second is that given the potential for abuse of attorney-client privilege, Congress should consider whether or not legal firms should continue to be able to combine business, lobbying, legal, and other functions. And it's important when we think of these professional service providers in Washington, D.C., not to have a sort of uh, folksy image of the lone lawyer in his sort of uh, elegant, uh, elegant office, but to think of these sort of vertically integrated and horizontally integrated even uh, mega corporations. Now, we also believe, and this is building on uh, what uh, Elise said earlier, that Congress should also consider whether or not IOLTA accounts should be subject to the same anti-money laundering regulations as other financial products, and we, of course, think that they should. Now, moving on to incorporation services. These are services offered either by individual incorporation agents or by, most of the time, by lawyers themselves. We believe that Congress should mandate the creation of a federally overseen registry of beneficial ownership for companies and trusts. I think it's very important uh, not just to think of companies being the companies, shell companies, LLCs being the one unit of anonymity, but also to consider the far more, uh, you know, far more historic and in some ways powerful uh, unit of trusts. We also believe, as our second policy recommendation, that incorporation agents should be legally required to perform reasonable due diligence on prospective clients, thus extending, as our colleagues have said, the sort of AML practices onto these uh, professions. And our third policy from corporation ser uh, services is that penalties should be introduced for failure to carry out reasonable due diligence and or intentionally submitting misleading information to the beneficial ownership register. Now, they even now even I think a, a particularly uh, relevant uh, broader point from that drawing from that policy recommendation is that what this whole sort of sad saga in sort of Washington politics and New York politics shows us is that the United States has been very poor at policing financial crime and sort of elite uh, financial crime over the years. And the individuals, lobbyists, lawyers, uh, and professional service providers engaged with it, engaged in it have long believed that simply due to its complexity, its lack of, uh, due to its complexity, due to its lack of, uh, 
sort of lack of dedicated units uh, really working onto it, and due to the lack of really strong penalties on it, that they could simply sort of get uh, get away with it. And I think that what, just to again repeat the point earlier, that I don't think what we're living through right now is merely a personality-driven story of individuals in the Trump campaign and an individual story of greed, collusion, and malpractice. I think this is a systemic story where you where this was uh, this could indeed happen again it uh, has indeed happened on many other levels uh, before it's part of a broader story about power and professionals now moving on to financial services my favorite which is that we believe that congress should legislate a fundamental reform of us anti of the us anti money laundering system recasting it to meet the challenges of the 21st century is that we I've been arguing here uh, for some time that we need to stop thinking about security merely in these uh, traditional physical dimensions, securing space, the space, the border, land, sea, and uh, so on, and that we need to make sure that financial services uh, have at least as much um, sort of uh, uh, security provision as like your regular airports, given how important they are for, um, uh, for the nature of power in the 21st century. And then researched and wrote a report, which you'll find a reference to on page 24, uh, which we published last year, uh, called Money Laundering for 21st Century Authoritarianism. There's a lot of detail in there. A great deal of research went into that. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> um, so we believe that ML rules should be applied more consistently and proportionately across the financial services sector. And in particular, the, the Treasury Department should review current exemptions and emissions from due diligence reporting and uh, requirements, the most glaring of which are the luxury real estate sector, sort of hedge funds, and uh, the other professions that my colleagues were, sort of, were uh, mention, mentioning. And that we um, believe that senior executives at financial institutions should personally face tougher penalties for failing to implement adequate AML reforms and uh, AML controls. And finally, to improve effectiveness and reduce administrative uh, burdens, the Treasury Department should, consider, should lead a cross-departmental initiative to accelerate the development and rollout of new AML strategy, uh, strategies and technologies, working closely with fintech and financial services uh, sectors. So sort of two points about the nature of governance that I'd like to draw out there. One is, um, uh, the, fir the first one is, we don't talk enough and think enough about the actual technological hardware of enough of this. And that so many sort of complex uh, systems to do with law enforcement, to do with financial crime, are operating on incredibly outdated uh, software. Now, imagine your sort of worst experiences. We said we don't really have to deal with them but, uh, that often anymore. But when occasionally your computer would flash into an MS-DOS mode, like we still have a lot of internal government having to deal with software like that. And that behind the scenes, the software of governance in so many dimensions is simply not up to task. And we believe that especially in this, where we have the, um, the suspicious activities uh, reports, the software is not up to task. The individuals tasked with it offer, uh, do not have security uh, clearances. There are enough people working for it. 
And this is the kind of stuff which bureaucrats discuss every day. That doesn't mean it's boring. That means it's important. I think that we need to have more, we need to think more about the software of government. And I, I think that's been uh, neglected. And that's one area where European states are generally a little bit ahead of the United, uh, uh, generally a little bit uh, ahead in the United States. Now, coming to this point about senior executives and penalties, like one sort of broader point about governance, which I think that, that this report has made me and Nate think about a lot, is that a lot of our problems with governance in the 21st century are the flip side to a crisis in the corporate form. And that we don't, we think of the corporate form as it exists in America, as its legal form, as something sort of permanent and enduring. It's always been this way. But in fact, the corporate form is incredibly fluid. And the corporate form is only emerged at the sort of origins of uh, modern capitalism. It was, it is such a powerful legal entity. Initially, you needed acts of Congress or acts of Parliament in order to set one up. And that the corporate form as it currently exists as this sort of uh, digital piece of paper or this digital imprint that permits the creator to do certain things or avoid certain things within the financial system is only a creation of the last 20 to 30 years. And in two aspects, I believe that we're seeing a crisis of the corporate form. And there is one is anonymity and how the current corporate form permits so much anonymity. And I'm not simply talking about Privacy, anonymity, I think, is different from privacy, and this can't be stressed enough, because privacy is the ability not to have your sort of business known about to sort of any old uh, gentleman on the street. Anonymity is the ability to completely exit the system and not to be identifiable to law, law enforcement, and I believe that that's what we're, we, we see here, and that I think that that's producing a crisis of government. And when one would, does an X-ray now, not just of the uh, sad story involving the uh, presidency, but of any corruption case, of any case of, um, uh, of sort of, uh, of illicit financing linked to power, one always finds the same issue, which is the, the shell company. But it's not the shell company per se, it's a crisis of the corporate form which permits anonymity. And I think we need to, to think about that. We need to think whether or not the corporate form should be put, should have that power? How can we rescue the corporate form, which has been so important in establishing the wealth-generating society that uh, we, have, we, we um, have experienced for so long? The flip side, um, the, so the, when it comes to the second point about the crisis of the corporate form, I think something um, very important to, to think about is its narrow definition of generating shareholder value. And there's a cartoon in the uh, New Yorker, which I think it's worth, uh, which I think sort of sums it up beautifully, of individuals sitting in a, in a cave going, yes, we burnt the atmosphere off, but at least for a short period, we provided, high, uh, we provided very high uh, shareholder value. And I think that a corporate form that excludes these externalities I don't know what this would look like. It's important to work out a, a definition of this which would be pro-business, which would enable, uh, which wouldn't clamp down on the ability to sort of trade effectively. But how can we, how can we think, how can we sort of think about whether the corporate form is defined in a manner that 
leads executives to make short-term decisions because they're simply trying to provide quick uh, shareholder value. And I'm thinking of, of scandals such as the Volkswagen scandal. Uh, here, now moving on to the next point in the nexus, which is real estate uh, services. And as you'll see, we're sort of moving, we're sort of following the flow of uh, dark money, of illicit finance into the United States. It, we've talked a lot about failure uh, on this panel, but it's important to say there's also been success and that there's been continuing success within uh, the US uh, uh, government system. And that we think that Congress should make the geographical targeting orders pilot scheme permanent and expand it nationwide. And these uh, GTOs, which were just which we were, were sort of uh, raised earlier, I think have had a really excellent uh, ability um, of deterring uh, money laundering and corruption in uh, in real estate. And coming back to this issue of software of government, we know that there are often in uh, problems of governance. We know that a problem is happening, but we don't have the data, and we need to establish schemes, establish the data to work out what the correct policy fixes in order that we can do something in a way that doesn't make, that doesn't make mistakes, that damages uh, core industries or core parts of the financial system. Just a point on the GTOs. That's a view, expanding them and making them nationwide isn't, isn't the sort of thing that people at NGOs and, and so on and so forth are advocating with. The, the head of the, um, the, the real estate um, professional body in Miami, which was one of the, the target cities uh, for this, uh, and where um, when, when GTOs were introduced, cash involved in high-end real estate deals actually went down by 95%. Uh, so that's not just kind of significant, that's almost completely um, the, 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 when people were asked to divulge the, the information to uh, law enforcement. Uh, so it's actually not just us, it's, it's the head of the, of, of the real, realtors in, in Miami basically also has said that this is an excellent scheme and he's wholeheartedly behind it. Um, so this is another one where we're very hopeful that um, positive change will occur soon. Um, Thank you. Well, um, I think that the, we have argued that the Treasury Department should review anti-money laundering, the anti-money laundering regime, um, and end these exemptions for real estate professionals. And we think that there's been too often in uh, the discussion of professions on the the Hill, we're presented with a sort of folksy image of, oh, you wouldn't want to impose an onerous anti-money laundering regime on, an on a small-time individual uh, re real estate agent. But in fact, the, the nature of these businesses in the, the 21st century is we are talking of a highly, uh, of in some ways, an almost monopolized uh, sector with huge corporations that more than easily have the capacity to do this, which are exempt from anti-money laundering, uh, from the anti-money laundering regime. And we think that one of these, there's one sort of point here about conceptualizing the financial system that we have uh, discussed often in our uh, report, is that too much of the way we think about the anti-money laundering regime and the financial system is based on, the, based on a bank centric model. The idea that money from abroad, dirty money, is only coming in through banks. It's only coming in through big banks. If we put an AML regime on the big banks, then it'll be fine. What, we see, what we're living in right now is an AML regime that puts correctly um, an AML, uh, a high AML responsibility on the leading blue chip banks. And like, they're, not, they're not suffering a crisis of profit, profitability, I can tell you that. But 
ignores that giant financial flows, in some, in some cases even larger, pass through non-bank financial institutions. And there's been a financial revolution, which in a lot of ways has been very positive, which means that finance is no longer so bank-centric. We have finance in hedge funds, and we have finance going through law, law firms, uh, asset, we've had the boom in asset management, and we've had also real estate uh, being used as, in some ways, a financial tool, or in some ways, uh, a derivative. And any drive now around a major city in the Western uh, world and, uh, and beyond shows that property is being used as uh, as an investment as an investment tool, and it, we don't think that the regulatory regime has caught up with uh, that. So, moving on to the lobbying and uh, lobbying and public uh, relations uh, services, which is uh, which is something that's been of such heightened discussion in. Uh, Washington for the right reasons uh, over the, the last few months. We believe that after a consultation period, Congress should consolidate the Lobbying Disclosure Act and Foreign Re Agents Registration Act into a single, simple, streamlined lo lobbying disclosure regime fit for countering 21st century authoritarian influence campaigns. And one thing that we discovered in our research looking at the process of registering for uh, registering is that just bureaucratically, in terms of paperwork, it's incredibly cumbersome, and then the actual um, the actual process is difficult and poor, full of loopholes, and it would be a benefit to the industry and to the authorities if this was replaced with a new uh, simple one. Now, that we believe that the ban on administration officials working for foreign governments should be expanded. And this should include foreign state-controlled commercial entities and should also apply to serving and former members of Congress. And that uh, we think that's absolutely essential in firewalling political institutions in the United States and in the, the West for the uh, 21st century. Here's a, a sort of point about uh, governance that I think it's worth thinking about is a lot of the problems that we're talking about now in the United States, and a lot of the problems we're talking about even in this report, are not new problems if you're looking from a country in the second or third world, as they used to be uh, known. If you're looking from Beijing, if you're looking from uh, uh, Ankara or Delhi or Islamabad, you know, these states are used to being the locations where an enormous amount of foreign capital and foreign influence comes in. But the West is not used to being the recipient of enormous amounts of financial, in, of financial investment and political influence from beyond, the, beyond uh, the West. So we haven't firewalled our institutions against uh, influence campaigns because the United States is used to mass investment coming from territories within its hub and spooks alliance system coming from Japan, coming from Britain. It's not used to a situation where money would be coming from China or Russia or the, uh, or, or the Gulf. And the practice and the assumption is that these regimes have the same setup as ourselves, so we can legislate in a similar way. We believe that's different. We believe that's different. And what a sort of more multipolar world uh, financially and politically means is 
realizing that this will be that this is in some ways the future you want. You want to attract large levels of investment from non-Western powers, and how do you firewall your institutions to make sure that that's not a politically compromising thing to to be? So that's what we believe those policies would help us. So moving on, we think that lobbyists should be legally required to perform reasonable due diligence on prospective foreign clients, and that the Office of Government uh, Ethics, Clerk of the House, and Department of Justice should launch an awareness campaign to improve public relations and lobbying sectors' understanding of the risks of dealing with foreign clients. And this is building on Nate's point earlier, which is it's which is, is that the onus is on the authorities to explain exactly what they want and exactly what the, the risks, uh, the risks uh, are to individuals working in this sector who we shouldn't think of as all sort of malicious or pernicious and, uh, uh, or, and so on. So the last um, uh, element of this which we looked at, we decided to investigate the fintech and cryptocurrency sector. Um, because uh, we felt that this, this sector, which is being uh, exploited by those uh, seeking illicit finance, had not, cr not fully been brought into this uh, conversation before. Now, firstly, we believe that the US government must develop a cross-departmental strategy that addresses money laundering uh, concerns within this, uh, this sector without stifling innovation. Now, there are individual programs. There are, is individual action being taken. It's hard to summarize it. A lot of it's happening very quickly, but we don't think that it's fully joined up. We think that the United States should then pressure the international community to develop and adopt a framework for consistent regulation and standards, especially financial secrecy havens now seeking to become crypto havens. And that the Defense Department should invest in research and development to ensure the United States maintains its technological uh, superiority. Now, one sort of point about governance uh, that we found addressing this is that the top-level issue, uh, the top-level problems that uh, a presidency in crisis can generate are adequately discussed, I think, in the, uh, in the media on a day-to-day -day basis. When one looks at the second tier, third tier, fourth tier issues, a presidency in crisis can have serious uh, ramifications uh, there. And that in terms of the international standard setting on blockchain and cryptocurrency, an issue which is being taken incredibly seriously by Russia and uh, China and the European Union, we've had the, the there's been a lack of leadership, uh, attention has been spotty, and uh, this is, it's important to think, uh, it's important to look, I think, at the second, third, and fourth tier consequences of, uh, uh, of what's uh, going on. Now, we think that a formal working group should be established so that regulators can work with developers designing new platforms and coins to understand and remain apprised of emerging crypto developments. There's a complete lack of communication here. And that the Treasury should continue to regulate cryptocurrency exchanges as financial institutions. And the Justice Department should aggressively pursue rogue exchanges uh, overseas. And that training, um, training and ongoing education should be introduced for lawmakers and professions likely to engage with emerging crypto technologies uh, in the future. So um, I just want to sort of pass over to, to Nate for some thoughts, uh, some concluding thoughts on the policies. Yeah, no. I mean, much of this you'll have sort of seen pop up in, in either the same for slightly amended form in, in all of our 
famous for her publications. Um, I mean, the one the one new thing here is is the fintech and cryptocurrency section. We haven't done anything on that before. And of course, like you read all these sort of scaremongering stories at the moment, so we say, oh goodness, well the next report we we have to have something about that. There must be loads of new enablers there. In fact, because um, you know the mainstream cryptocurrencies, at least, um, you basically don't have any. They're kind of not valued at the moment, at least, without their ability to be converted both from and back into a fiat currency. Um, so actually, there are no. I mean, the, the very exchanges fine, but they're they're just acting kind of criminally, frankly. So, uh, but the but there are no new enablers. So what it goes to show is there are, there are actually these first sort of well, one, two, three, four, five sort of sectors. But if we really focused on those, those are, those are the kind of core things at the centre of our of our democracy, underpinning public life. And if we if we took these steps, these, implemented these policies, we would go a long way towards uh, cleaning up capitalism, um, strengthening our democracy. Uh, and I, th I think that's really like where we were going with this report. Thank you. Elise, uh, Mark, do you have anything you'd like to add to this? Well, I think w what the real value is of this report is that it goes beyond the banks. Um, we have a very vigorous anti-money laundering regime for our banks. And it took a long time to put in place. The banks didn't do a good job for a long time. But they have really started to climb that mountain, and they're doing much better. Now, one of the reasons they're doing better is there's been enforcement action, uh, large monetary fines, pressure from regulators uh, to try to improve what they're doing. There's a long way to go, but still, uh, the United States has one of the more vigorous anti-money laundering obligations for its financial institutions. But that isn't true for most of the actors looked at here, most of the professionals here. Lawyers are exempt. Incorporation agents are exempt. Realtors are exempt. Uh, lobbyists are exempt. Uh, and not to mention any, anybody involved in cryptocurrencies. Uh, nobody even really thought about them, although they're starting to, in some cases, treat them as financial institutions subject to that larger anti-money laundering uh, set of obligations. So I think what's really important here is that we're saying these other actors also need to have anti-money laundering obligations. Um, sometimes the reaction is, oh, that's too complicated, it's too hard. But actually, the entire system is risk-based. So for example, if a lawyer is doing a will for granny down the street, there just isn't an anti-money laundering uh, element to that transaction. But if they are uh, helping uh, a foreign dictator bring millions of dollars into the law firm account to then be used to purchase real estate or something like that, there's a much higher anti-money laundering risk. And so you should have uh, a better system. One of the things, my criticisms of the report, there's lots of great stuff in here. But what it says is that each of these uh, different actors need to do better due diligence on their clients. They have to know who their clients are, absolutely. But I would go further and say that each of them has to have an anti-money laundering program. Not just do due diligence on their clients, but actually have an affirmative anti-money laundering program, risk-based, to determine where their risks are and to deal with them in a straightforward way. The second thing I'd like to talk about is the whole corporate ownership transparency set of issues. 
This report really uh, focuses on that issue, identifies it as a serious weakness in US law, and they're absolutely right. Um, corporations were originally designed to shield the corporate owners from personal liability. People were saying, how can I go into business if something happens with that business, I'm gonna lose everything I own. The state then created the corporate form that said, all right, the corporation <coughs> will be responsible for its own liability. You can't pierce that veil and go to the owners, except in certain circumstances. The corporate form was never designed to hide ownership. That didn't happen until the 1970s, when some clever people said, well, let's start using our corporate forms to hide who's actually behind these actions. That was never the intention of the corporate form. It has really been twisted and manipulated, and we need to start dealing with that. A lot of countries around the world have started to deal with that. The UK led the way. It not only required a beneficial ownership in its corporate registry, in other words, you, you need to know who the real human being is behind the corporate form, not the person of record, but the real beneficial owner, that's the term of art. They not only created a registry and required beneficial ownership for all UK-formed entities, but they also made it available to the public. Now, in the, they had, took a second step as well, and they said, when it comes to U, uh, UK real estate, and if the shell entity owns that real estate, we need to know who's behind it, whether it's a UK entity or formed somewhere else, because we want to know who owns UK real estate. In both of those areas, the United States is far behind the rest of the world. We do not require in any state beneficial ownership information for corporate registries. And when there are proposals on the national level to say, all right, we should start requiring beneficial ownership information, no one's talking about making it public as they do in the UK. People predicted you know, the sky would fall when the UK had this public registry. The sky didn't fall. And in fact, they're starting to clean up a lot of the problems with their registries. And all those bad guys that can't operate so easily in UK, where do you think they're going now? They're coming to the United States because we are still the largest place in the world with the most anonymity, the most hidden ownership of the corporations that we form and unleash on the rest of the world. In addition, we don't know who owns US real estate. Shouldn't we know who owns real estate in the United States? Why should we have these shell entities and have no idea who is behind the ownership of our real estate? A transparency measure. So this report takes two very important steps. It says, let's look beyond the banks to require these other actors who have been engaged in a lot of you know, behaving badly. We need to have them part of our anti-money laundering regime instead of outside of it. And in addition, we have to work on corporate transparency. So I think in those two areas, this report makes very valuable and very important recommendations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, I would echo all those thoughts. Um, and I think the one thing I can add, I think that's, that's useful here is sort of a reflection on your last points, Ben, regarding the role of innovation. And I, I think I'll encapsulate it in a statement that will be uh, intentionally contradictory, which is, we need to dive in with both feet to deal with the innovation opportunity and challenge, but we also sort of need to go backward to go forward. And I'll explain what I mean. So um, the question of uh, technological innovation being a way to either enhance um, 
the ability of financial institutions and financial professionals to do anti-money laundering work is um, relatively new, but the banking sector has been talking about it for a while. Um, for the same reason, they're starting to turn over differently from beneficial ownership, which is that they see a cost-saving opportunity here. Um, if you can create an AI logarithm or um, algorithm that can uh, do in seconds what it used to take someone to do in hours, you're going to save countless amounts of uh, money um, uh, doing that compliance work and use that money for other things. Um, and I think there's real promise in innovation. Um, and I, I think there's also an importance for whether civil society, uh, government regulators, um, or people concerned about national security institutions to start talking about what the 21st century system looks like now. And here's the reason why. Um, with that technology comes some risk. Uh, the risk is um, twofold. One, that some of the tried and true methods will be thrown out. And two, that it will be used to sort of bypass some of those obligations um, to say, we've, you know, we've written a, a line of code. We've solved that problem, um, when human judgment is st still a key element. Um, but I also think there's a risk that um, the disruptive nature of that technology might actually make it harder um, for us to construct a new regime that has the appropriate points of intervention. And I'll explain what I mean. With, with um, not just cryptocurrency, but the underlying blockchain technology, um, right now, if I go down to the local CVS and buy um, a soda, um, in order for that transaction to um, go through, it actually has to pass through a number of different institutions from one bank to another, to the clearinghouse, which clears all transactions, to the credit card company. Um, you know, smarter minds than I can actually explain all of those things, but um, it's very clear that um, even simple transactions uh, put you into a space where you're, you're involved in a very complex orchestrated scheme that involves lots of different players. Um, blockchain technology, um, the way in which it, it can sometimes provide automatic verification, um, a, a ledger, a distributed ledger of information that can't, that's indelible, that can't be erased, it's very difficult to hack. On the one hand, might make that a lot simpler and cleaner um, and save a lot of people money. But our anti-money laundering system, um, our, the, the compliance measures, the way regulators um, get involved, um, the way outside parties who are affected by that system intervene is based on a set of law that assumes the transactions will be processed in that way, that they'll always be processed with those six different parties. But when you reduce the number of parties from six to two, where are the points of intervention? Um, now, granted, I think there's time and opportunity, and there are people with skin in the game who will want to build into whatever new systems that banks are using to both do anti-money laundering and clear those transactions, but it's not guaranteed. And as Ben pointed out, there are other parties outside of the US who are deeply involved in the conversation about what those new systems to, should look like. But you know, we're new to it as well, so we may be missing it, but we're not seeing the same level of engagement here from the different stakeholders that could be affected by that. So that's why we have to dive into the innovation conversation with both feet to make sure that whatever new systems are created, make it so that we don't end up creating a system that's so fast, um, so efficient, um, that ends up creating more op opacity, not less. But on the flip side, um, if I were a policymaker looking at this laundry list, I'd, I would sort of say, wow, there's a lot here. There's a lot of great opportunities, but a lot to do. Where do I start? How do I make sense of this? And I think the principle, guiding principle I would suggest is start with the basics. As Elise pointed out, um, you know, uh, large
large swaths of the financial professional sectors aren't even doing basic due diligence, don't even have basic programs. Other countries are moving forward in beneficial ownership. We don't even have a beneficial ownership collection system here. Um, those systems, um, my uh, other colleagues in this space are better at articulating this than I am, but you know, um, those won't be a panacea, but um, that's the cornerstone of the foundation of what our system needs to be. Before we can innovate on AI, we need beneficial ownership transparency. It's like creating a fancy home alarm system, but leaving the back door open. Um, so I guess my recommendation, looking at this, where to start, you know, a lot of places to dig in for policymakers and advocates and, and professionals, but the guiding principles are we, we need to look ahead, but we also need to make sure that we're getting the fundamentals right. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. <clears throat> That's terrific. I was hoping we would uh, end our comments with precisely this uh, notion of prioritization, because there's an awful lot here. Um, so we're going to open up the floor. We've got about 10 minutes left to some questions or very short comments that we can react to. We don't uh, outlaw short comments. And I just want to say uh, one thing, which is, uh, before we start that, which is the overall context of this. I mean, why are we interested in all of this uh, stuff? It, is, it isn't uh, because there's some internal crisis in our society or anything like that. It's because there's a political attack on liberal democracy by authoritarian states. And everything we do is about counterattacking counter against authoritarian influence. And the kleptocracy initiative was founded uh, just as Putin was going into Crimea. So I just want to be uh, sure that we're all clear where uh, the Hudson Institute program is coming from in terms of that. So uh, please. And we, yes, please, we have a microphone that will go around. And please just identify yourself okay. and your affiliation or affiliations. Uh, I, I'm Frank Vogel, and uh, I teach at Georgetown, and I'm affiliated with various anti-corruption groups like Transparency International. Simple question. Where are the accountants? I think it's a terrific report, but so much of the work I've done in this area, I've always got back to the auditors and the accountants and time and time again, they seem to play such a huge role in intentionally overlooking things, in misreporting things. And when we look at the various cases, and you, Ben, and others, and Elise, of course, know many more than I do, um, why are they missing in this report? Surely they play a huge role in basically creating the opacity in finance that we need to deal with. No, absolutely. Well, I'll answer first, and they may want to add something, but I think it's uh, assumed they fall under financial services. But there have been a huge number of very documented cases involving, uh, as, as you notice, we don't mention any names in the report. Um, and I won't mention any names, but in fact, all the major uh, accounting firms have been implicated in various, uh, various uh, scandals and, and various, uh, many, many things. This has been documented. Um, there have been fines paid. I mean, there's been a lot going on in that area. Yeah. So I think we're, we're aware of that. We, we could have highlighted it a little more. Um, am I leaving <laughs> anything? No, no you're, quite, you're quite right. Um, so, we, but, I mean, you're right. They, they crop up everywhere every time. Often, they're some of the worst offenders. Um, we, you know, in this, as we were rattling this out, we, we thought they were sort of covered under financial services. And then, as, as we sent this off to print, this, this very thought occurred to me. I was just looking at... Um, there's actually something that's going on in South Africa 
Uh, <laughs> um, I won't name names again, but um, I was just like, wow, these guys really probably did deserve their own section. So maybe the enablers too uh, will have a, a big section for you on that. <laughs> oh, sir? I'm Bill Veal, uh, President Emeritus of the U.S.-Kazakhstan Business Association, which I ran for 15 years. I wanted to ask a question about the uh, robber and the getaway car driver and the connection between them. In the entities that you've looked at, have you looked at the process of soliciting business and how that operates here, or is this a passive activity? No, I mean, well, obviously, you know, American businesses go out and they try and they do they do solicit business business from people they shouldn't be soliciting business from necessarily. I mean, when they do that in a corrupt way, they're cover, covered by FCPA, um, which is a very powerful law. You know, there's a, there's a debate about whether it's too powerful. I don't think so. I don't think anyone in this panel would think so either. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, that that still goes on, um, but the FCPA is an important shield against that kind of, and deterrent to that kind of behavior. As a person who does congressional oversight, I'd love to see an investigation of that. Of law firms, how much are they soliciting the business? How much are people coming to them? The accounting firms, the banks. Uh, I think that would be very interesting. We have done some work. Uh, for example, when we looked at HSBC, uh, we looked at a Saudi bank that was one of their large clients. Uh, Information came out that that bank and its owners were involved uh, with uh, uh, terrorism. And pressure was put on the bank. HSBC decided they would tell all of their 80 different affiliates, it's up to you to decide if you want to do business with them or not. The United States branch said, no, we're not going to do business with them. Um, the Saudi bank then put tremendous pressure on the US branch use the other uh, affiliates of HSBC to put pressure on them. Eventually, the US entity agreed to take them back on a partial basis. Uh, what they were doing at that point is providing US dollars to, to this particular bank to enable them to provide US dollars to people in Saudi Arabia and other people that they were had as clients. And it was a kind of an interesting case history that was kind of a mix of, well, we had this client. We decided the client was too high risk. And the client put pressure on them. They took them back. So there's been a few little stories about that. But I don't think there's been a very serious, in-depth look at business solicitation. I think that would be an absolutely terrific area for congressional oversight. Quickly, just to add, I mean, um, this has cropped up in both investigations, global witnesses done, and ones we've also reviewed, where uh, I think this speaks to your point in a slightly um, bank shot sort of way, which is that. Um, Financial institutions often have mixed incentives, and that might extend to law firms as well, in terms of how they, how and from whom they solicit business. So, you look at the one DB case, one of the banks that was involved in taking the business from one of the players, uh, Joe Lau or, or Reza Aziz, where um, uh, one of the banks in question had done their due diligence and said this client poses a, a lot of risk, um, but they were overridden by senior members of the management team who said, "No, nope, we're taking on this client." In fact, I think it was a one of the president of the banks in, in question. It's been a little while since I've looked at the case. And I think that's why Ben's uh, point about accountability for senior managers is so important. Um, institutions like these will always have mixed incentives, both in terms of the, their 
where their profit centers are also in terms of the role and their, their either fiduciary duty or legal duty. So um, if they're going to have to play in that space, someone has to take accountability for managing that correctly. If I can just add one more little story. Um, when we did an investigation of Citibank and money laundering involving corrupt foreign leaders, um, the head of Citibank at that time, John Reed, said, we don't need these people. We don't want these people. But he found that he had a hard time getting his relationship managers and private bankers to believe him. And what he actually did is he did a recording of part of our hearing where we were berating some of their private bankers for the work that they were doing and the clients that they were soliciting and played it for their private bankers all around the world saying, you don't want to be in this position. Don't put the bank in this position. But they had to do a persuasion campaign to try to convince their own private bankers that what they were saying at the top, we don't want corrupt leaders as clients, to try to convince them that they actually meant it. Interesting dynamic. Last, last question, I'm afraid, and then we'll... Yeah, yeah. But then we'll, we'll be here. I mean, we're not, it's not a large group. We okay. Robert Schroeder, International Investor. Uh, it seems that the problem here is the lack of political will. Uh, we have saw an effort to get uh, uh, beneficial ownership law for real estate in New York, and then it was overturned. Uh, even in the most <laughs> egregious cases where your, your organization, Mark, brought it to light, these attorneys, I don't think there was much follow-through punishment for many of them, was there? And the problem here is the public's not convinced that there's really much harm coming from this. Uh, there's a lot of winners. On, we count on media guys like you. Yeah, yeah, that maybe work. that's what we need to do, a better campaign of that, because it seems to be there's a lot of winners, bankers, <laughs> lawyers, uh, real estate agents. The public's not convinced that it's being harmed by much of this. We see, you know, the public just hears, hey, there's more f money flowing into the U.S. But that's democracy also. I mean, I was recently at the Churchill <clears throat> War Rooms, and it reminded me that sometimes things have to get pretty bad before uh, people really react. Great. So I would disagree with, you know. you, with your premise. And I'll just give you one example in the real estate sphere. People are outraged by the lack of affordable housing. They look around in New York and they have entire buildings that have been created for luxury apartments. They're all bought up by these, you know, who knows who, and they're all empty. Yeah, they're one third empty. In the UK, that's people partly what drove the, the reform there, it. right? Yeah. I mean, that's just one example. If you ask people what they think about these lobbyists who are helping foreign people bring money into this country and to lobby for them, I don't think people are happy. So I disagree with your premise. Well, I, I would like to just. And I'm afraid we have to, to have to stop at that point uh, by pointing out there's huge interest on the Hill. So actually, the uh, congressmen and senators are way ahead of the public, as it were, uh, on these issues. Senator Whitehouse. Senator Rubio is very lined up. Rubio is also very good. It's a bipartisan issue. So I think actually has an anti-corruption bill. bill. Just, just to chime in, I mean, I think um, as part of the Financial Accountability and Transparency Coalition, the Global Witnesses member, we've made a lot of success in the past year in a very tricky political environment where, oddly enough, because of bank support for beneficial ownership transparency, because realtors now see the writing on the wall and recognize that something's going to happen to them, so they want to be on one side of it, because of national security arguments made by colleagues you see here, there's sort of a grand, unlikely bedfellows coalition of groups that have made great strides on the Hill to the point where 
uh, Representative Henselink, chair of the Financial Services Committee, was bringing forth a bill this year that would have included beneficial ownership transparency. And it was only because of pressure from a small group of businesses. We've even seen businesses like Dow Chemical lobby for this because it would help them deal with their supply chains. From a small subset of the business community that's concerned about this issue, they were able to slow it down. Um, yet at the same token, when um, Henselink tried to strip that measure out um, because they thought it would make uh, a more palatable political consensus for a broader AML bill that they were pushing, um, law enforcement and national media voices were united in their criticism of that bill to the extent that rather than bring that bill forward without beneficial ownership, they pulled the bill entirely. Um, and so now they're regrouping to try to rebuild that political consensus. But if you look at where we were four years ago on this, um, I think, uh, how should I put it? There, there's a <laughs> uh, there's an iceberg emerging from the ocean. We can't see the tip of it very well, but if you look underneath the surface, there's quite a bit of support that's growing. It's just a question of what will be the straw that breaks the camel's back and gets us where they And there are also members of Congress who are on legislation. There's uh, Senator Grassley, uh, Senator Rubio, Senator Whitehouse. There's uh, in the House, uh, Pete King, uh, Carol Maloney. There are a number of different members of Congress, three different bipartisan bills. So there are people that very much care about this. And from these all these different perspectives, the banks are, are tired of getting tarnished by this dirty money. The real estate industry is embarrassed about what's going on. Even Delaware now supports federal legislation because they are getting tarnished by this reputation as being a place where it's using Delaware companies to uh, hide ownership. So I actually think there's a lot of public concern about this. There's a lot of anti-corruption concern. Uh, but we still haven't done it. There hasn't. There is a lack of political will to actually get over the finish line, and hopefully, yeah. events like this and reports like this will help us get there. And just to add very quickly, I know I am, but particularly a conversation from a national security perspective, because um, in a polarized political environment, it's difficult to find common cause. But this is one argument that even if people have different perspectives on how to approach those concerns, they recognize it is a concern. So I think that's what what makes Ben's work and the cryptocracy issues work at, at looking at this from, from that perspective so incredibly valuable. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's reason for optimism.